0: Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 470 of the podcast. It's March 1st, 2023. Our guest today is Gary Michelle, and you'll learn more about him and his background in a minute. We've got a fairly unusual opportunity today to hear the perspectives of a CEO. Gary has been the CEO of many organizations and He's not just supporting Lean in those roles. He's been really owning Lean and driving it as part of the culture and, and the strategy of the organizations he's been with. So I think you're really going to enjoy the discussion here today. And it's uh, it was actually Gary, he was the one here in the conversation who keeps bringing the talk back to the shop floor, the Gemba, if you will, the people who work there. So we're going to talk about Lean from a strategy deployment standpoint and, uh, and top-down leadership. We're also going to talk about the importance of engaging everybody on the front lines and, and bridging those gaps between the C-suite and the front lines. So you can learn more about Gary. You can find links, uh, transcript, video, and more by going to leanblog.org slash 470. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Gary Michelle. He was most recently chairman and CEO of a company called Geldwen until August 2002. And then just after that, I saw him give uh, an outstanding, really outstanding keynote talk at the AME Annual Conference in Dallas. So Gary was previously president and CEO of Honeywell Home and Building Technologies. He was president and CEO of Club Car, and he also led the train HVAC business, among other executive roles. So Gary is an engineer. He has a BS in mechanical engineering from Virginia Tech and an MBA from the University of Phoenix. And his book, titled, Decomplify, How Simplicity Drives Stability, Innovation, and Transformation will be available later this year. So we'll get to talk about all of that and more. Gary, thank you so much for being here. How are you?
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Doing well. Thank you.
0: So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we can, not to ask you to recreate that whole keynote talk, but there's a couple, you know, follow-up <laughs> questions and a couple other things that we can um, dig into. But, you know, first off, I, I do like to ask guests um, about their lean origin story if you will you know especially as you rose through the ranks to be CEO of different companies you know how where and when did you first get introduced to lean
1: so I think like a lot of people um, particularly in, you know running operate uh, manufacturing businesses you know we all grew up with you know uh, quality learning about quality and demand flow and um, it I guess everything kind of came together for me when I was running a business called Road Development, an asphalt paver business, uh, asphalt pavers and um, uh, compacting business that uh, Ingersoll Rand had. And um, we were making a major transformation in our product categories and uh, really updating our products. And at that time, certainly in the operations, we had... Had uh, had started some lean transformations within the four walls. Certainly, on uh, on some of the, the new lines for some of our new compactor products, and it was really slick. It really went well. It was everything you would expect, you know, with uh, you know great value stream mapping and all, all the way down, to visual management, and um, um, you know, really what you would expect. And today, even in, in in a great a great line setup. But I guess I was still subscribing back then to this, you know, the old philosophy of uh, a commercial end and product end of the business, front end of the business, and then we kind of tossed everything over, and the operations folks kind of picked it up and and ran with it from there. And we were trying to take the same flow dynamics that we had in the compactor business, which is a you know higher volume, uh, less variable variable business to the paver business, which is the exact opposite, always station built, very custom. And, um, and we started to think about that, right? And we were looking at this global business, looking at this major transformation and looking at how to flow that line. And what ended up showing up for me was, uh, uh, you know, basically strategy, strategy deployment, right? Um, Hosh and Connery, how do you line up, um, you know, a critical few strategic decisions across an entire organization and get people to buy in and understand, you know, they're part of the whole. And for me, that's really when Lean as an enterprise um, business operating system or strategy came to life uh, where I really saw the magic of how alignment, communication, Taking visual management from the top to the bottom of the organization and combining everybody really as as one team, and, uh, and it's uh, it's maybe not the initial I- initial manufacturing uh, introduction, but mm-hmm. it's the introduction to how I saw it as a as a great enterprise tool. Yeah. So I'd love to come back and
0: explore some of that progression as you described it from being uh, a manufacturing thing to be more of an enterprise system but what, what was the, the rough time frame for when you were exposed to that in the asphalt
1: pavers business early 2000s for from the enterprise standpoint so it sounds like that was
0: kind of you know bubbling up through the organization or the sponsorship for that lean manufacturing activity might have been taking place at a plant manager level, VP of ops level.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my DP of ops at that time, um, had certainly brought it into that business. Um, you know, not to say we didn't have elements of lean in other facilities and, and other places in the business, but, um, but the total kind of certainly within the four walls was brought to me at that time.
0: Yeah. So I was wondering if you could expand a little bit you know I think it's really interesting, you know, to think about any of us individually trying to shift away from deeply held you know older philosophies. what I hear you saying, and you know correct me if I'm wrong or you know if you can elaborate on this that as a CEO, you were focused on sales, customer, product, and that manufacturing was a function that you you didn't really have to. Pay much notice to or how, how would you describe it and, and how that shift occurred
1: yeah I mean I think we we all grow up as general managers certainly understanding our, our operations and you know we give a, a you know, back in those days we gave a portion of our time to operations a portion of our time to the front end of the business and it was how you, you you where your priorities were and what each business um what each business needed. In my particular case, I did a lot of, um, you know, I went into a lot of businesses that needed some sort of transformation. That was kind of what my, my remit usually was in going to these businesses. So it depended on what the need was at the time. In this particular case, the the business needed uh, kind of a little bit of both. Right. And um, so I, I was able to use, you know, you know, my manufacturing bit to to work on the manufacturing side but again, there wasn't a tie to the overall growth strategy until you know it was kind of like the aha moment of if you get everybody aligned, if it's aligned on the same page um, and working together, you understand what's possible, but you also are able to make sure everybody um, you know, it gets the, it's kind of the right sequence at the right time, but making sure that everything's working together. So it wasn't that um, you know never 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 focused on manufacturing before. It certainly did, um, but uh, the, just the, the putting all the elements together of of, of flow of, of visual management of, uh, of, of of strategy deployment, putting it all together, mm-hmm. uh, really was uh, was that was the first time for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, what, what you said there reminds me of some old Taiichi Ono advice from one of his books about the Toyota production system. There's a chapter just headed, start from need. <laughs> and he would talk about your most pressing needs, where I think there's always a risk of, of people wanting to be prescriptive in terms of, well, here are the tools you need to implement because here's how we did it someplace else. What what would your guidance to other CEOs be about making sure that, that lean is, is really focused on the most pressing needs of the enterprise.
1: Well, I, I would say that part of it is also the other the other, 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 another saying there is, is go see, right? If you go see uh, what's going on in your organization, where the work is being done, you're going to see the need. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, it could be on the manufacturing floor. It could be in functional areas. It could be with your customers. But, um, you know, my recommendation to every leader is go see, go where the work's being done. That's where you're going to find out uh, where the value is created, but you're also going to see where the opportunities are. And
0: you're also, uh, you reminded me of another quote. This is really more from healthcare circles. Um, Dr. John Toussaint, who had been the CEO leading a lean transformation um, at a hospital system in Wisconsin, he had learned from manufacturing companies, Um, and, and I've heard John say, if you've seen one lean transformation, you've seen one lean transformation, and I, So that was my view, your reaction to that comment or, you know, how you would elaborate making sure, elaborate on the idea of making sure that you're not just trying to copy something that worked for you before or previously or something that worked elsewhere.
1: Yeah. I, I always tell people, I, I feel like uh, it's either Groundhog Day or, or um, I'm the, the, the kindergarten teacher, right? I see the same same seem to see the same course over and over again. Um, You know, I teach problem solving a lot, right? It's usually where it starts is, you know, it's a, it's an easy way to start um, because it's something that you don't need all the other tools necessarily, but you can, you can teach, um, you can teach a, a process. You can ask questions. You don't even need a form, right? You can, can ask the question, what problem are we trying to solve? What do we know? Where are we trying to get to, what do we think are are, are are the the obstacles to getting there? But the the they <laughs> if you've seen one you've seen one. Now, it's kind of true. Where you plug in um, and, and how you solve problems to me is really the essence of it all. The tools are just that they're tools, and you've got to have a culture around problem solving um, and using the right tools then to solve the problems. So. A hammer may work in one place, me a screwdriver in another. but the idea of it really flowing around problem solving to me is, is where you start. Um, half the problem, of course is just defining the problem sometimes. And um, I, but I've always felt that if we if we can focus around a problem solving, creating an entire organization of problem solvers even, we can then start to understand, you know, where we need to apply different tools to do different things. And uh to me, that's really, really kind of the essence of how I start an organization into lean mm-hmm. um, is really not even calling it that, right? We're talking about yeah. problem solving. So I'd love to dig into that a little
0: bit more. I mean, first off, like who was, who Who were your teachers or guides or coaches in, in terms of this style of problem solving?
1: Um, Well, I mean, there've been many along the way. I mean, I've... uh uh, you know, one of the, the very, so, you know, a guy named Ken Martin, uh, was, was the guy at road who, uh, who really was fascinated with the kind of Toyota production system and, and and brought me to, to our factory there. Um, you know, I've had a number of coaches along the way. Um, you know, you know, Dan McDonald, you know, (laughs) Greg Miner, um, you know, these guys have been, uh, you know, have taught me quite a bit over the way, a lady named Mary Kotler, um, who you may or may not know was, uh, you know, worked with me in operations, uh, at club car in fact, and she'd come from another industry and brought some, some great things. So, so a lot of people along the way, but uh, a lot of reading, a lot of studying and a lot of just doing, um, it mm. was one of the things is just get out there and do it. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, problem solving, um, you know, is something that uh, there's plenty written on it. Um, you can read all about it, but it, you know, you really need to dive in and you know roll up your sleeves and be part of of helping to solve problems and and playing the correct roles as well. Um, you know, as a leader in particular, you know, it's about asking questions and um, and and being curious. Um, you know, if you have those traits, you're going to probably be a pretty good problem solver. Yeah.
0: So then, in your roles as CEO, um, I'm I'm curious to hear you know how you would help people through the need to shed old habits, old philosophies. So, let's say, for example, not wanting to take the time to properly define the problem. You know, the the tendency or the habit to want to jump to solutions or rush into implementation like how, how would you coach or guide or, or help people not just learn lean but move past you know the old way that that might have
1: helped them rise up through the ranks so I mean I think I think you know one of the things is we're all taught our education system right and even when we get into business is kind of backwards for lean we're all taught how to solve problems right we're taught you know come up with the answer, um and uh, and give me the answer and and we're all that's what we are we're problem So we want to jump right to the pro- solving the problem and giving the answer and that's what gets us promoted it's what gets us jobs it would get us promoted we get into positions where we're trying to move organizations and we still have that tendency you know bias to action and and solve a problem it's. What we're not taught is how to ask questions and how to, uh, to, uh, to draw out uh, a little deeper meaning and, and what the problem might be for others and help others uh, learn to be problem solvers as well. So for me, it's about that, right? It's figuring out um, and helping people understand that their role has changed uh, as a leader uh, to be somebody that's got to enable others to be problem solvers. And the way you do that is through asking questions, observing, you know, being there. Um, you're the, the higher an organization you go, the the further away you are from actually doing the work. So there's a couple of things you need to realize. One in, in my case is the people closest to the work usually know how to do their job better than anybody else. They know what the problems are, and if they're enabled, they'll help solve them and they'll come up with new ways to do the work better. So we need to make sure that we identify where that work is being done, where the problem can best be solved, and give those folks the tools, the capabilities, quite frankly, the authority to go and solve those problems as well. So that's how I would coach a new leader or a leader that that doesn't quite understand that. The other side of that, the benefit of that, is if we create an entire organization of problem solvers, it frees up leadership's time to do other things. To solve the problems that are outside of their purview, or to focus more on growth and uh, and, and other things that uh, that are important to the enterprise as well.
0: Yeah. So over time, you know, as you're working with other leaders, in terms of what has an impact on the culture, like how much of it is a matter of coaching up leaders versus kind of selecting. Certain leaders for promotion based on their willing to, their their ability to adapt or um, their ability to adopt some of these new habits as you're
1: describing. So I think it's really important. I mean, culture a culture of problem solving, a culture that focuses on lean, and you know, you really have to have an environment that's that's aligned. Um, you know, I often talk about uh, a couple of elements. One is is having a rally cry within your company. It's probably something internal, but something that sets the direction for the entire company um that or, or team uh that 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 helps people rally around kind of your mission and, and your something they get excited about and, and want to be a part of um but the 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 to me you can set the culture in motion um you know an, a number of different ways but um you know one is is engaging engaging everybody at every level um, In the business, you know, being transparent about where you are, being transparent about where you want to go, and then involving them in uh, in the in the process. Um, One of the things I like to do, as as, you know, certainly did as a CEO, love to do it as a leader of a business, is anytime there are new hires in the company. So I do this every quarter. Anybody hired in the company anywhere um, in the quarter, I know I spent. You know, an hour with the the group uh, on a, on a on a call, just you know, on a video, and um, you know the uh, the if if they would, could be local, we would do it local, but we would would normally do it that way as well. And we would, I would just point out that you know I'm, what I'm really trying to understand and create is an environment um, where they're not fearful of asking me questions or pointing things out to me. So what I ask in that call, very simply, is tell me. You know, introduce yourself to me. Why? Why did you? Why did you come to the company? You know, what were you expecting in your first ninety days or however long you've been here? How has your expectation matched reality? And are there any opportunities that you've noticed since you've been here? You know that uh, that you know you could point out to us with your fresh eyes um, that that maybe we don't see or you know we've been walking by and. It does a couple of things. Number one, out of that, I get some gems, right? Of uh, you know where where the culture mostly at that point there there's the cultural things they were expecting, and it, it helps me understand are we matching the culture we're selling or the culture we uh, aspire to with what's actually there. And um, that's where that is. But it also starts to create that environment that even somebody who's only been with the company a few weeks or a few months is comfortable pointing out um, uh, areas of opportunity or problems that they see. Um, I do that also with, uh, when people go into new jobs, um, now there it's more a, a one-on-one, but if they go into a new role, uh, again, I, I, ask them very, you know, very quickly within their, you know, their first quarter or so of being there to share with me their observations, things that they see, because your fresh eyes are the, mm-hmm. the, you know, it's a great it's a great opportunity to see things. Um, you know, I get asked sometimes. You, know, you, you we walk plants, right? You've done this as well. You walk a plant, and invariably you go into a plant, and, and you're going to see something that they've been walking by for 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 months, weeks, whatever, and they always get frustrated. They're like, "How come you come in here and you could see something that we just didn't see?" And the point is. After time, it becomes part of the fabric. You you just don't even notice it. It's not that anybody's smarter or or you know we're trying to play a game or anything. It's just we fresh eyes always see something that 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 other people don't. And that's about creating the culture, changing the culture. It's more than just a a acute saying. Fresh eyes. It's 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 about creating that culture of pointing things out that 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 may be out of place.
0: Yeah. So let's get out. To the Gemba, to the shop floor here, I guess, with our conversation, because you keep, Sure. I appreciate that you keep um, taking us there. (laughs) Um, And speaking of, you know, old philosophies to move away from, you you know, I saw that, for example, like when I was at General Motors, the first plant manager I worked under was the very traditional stay in the mahogany paneled corner office type. He only came out to the factory if there was some really big, huge problem. And I don't, he didn't contribute much other than like glaring you know, about when's it going to be fixed versus a second plant manager who did spend all of his time out in the factory or a lot of it. He was Toyota trained, you know, through the GM Numi um, partnership. So um, how how often did you run into some version of that old habit or trying to convince other leaders to do like you were doing? You were leading by example, but what maybe that's what it, what it took. Well, infor-
1: yeah, I mean, that's kind of the answer, right? I mean, unfortunately, there's still a lot of plant managers a lot of companies that operate that way that uh um you know i kind of got the religion uh you know a couple of decades ago other people you know still haven't gotten it and i think that separates good companies from great companies but the um yeah i mean part of it is by example um almost almost every time you know it's, it's part of my leader standard work um is going to gemba um you know, Part of that is, is is obviously going into factories and and participating in um, I, I want to participate in their walk, not create a new one. Now I understand that you know more senior a leader you are, you show up. Something is going to be a little bit different. You know, it's going to be a little special. But um, for the most part, I ask when their walk is not you know creating one around my schedule. So I try to walk along. It's their walk. And I participate um, and I watch how it how it happens. It's uh, you can usually tell fairly quickly if it's a normal practice or not, if it's part of the organization, um, because just how people react. Um, but, you know, again, helping you know, when I go through there, I ask questions out of curiosity. Um, it's just a habit I have. So, um, you know, I watch what happens and if it, you know, if there's something I want to ask, I will ask it just like anybody else. But part of it is just showing the way, right? Showing how it's done, you know, back to that idea that we're not really taught how to ask questions. We're taught how to solve problems. You know, some people, you know, some plant managers even to this day, but, you know, even leader, you know, general managers and, you know, non-operational leaders who are asked to go to Gemba you know, are afraid of that. You know, it's, it's something that they're, they're not comfortable in. It's uh, um, something they've never done. Uh, they're afraid they're going to screw it up or ask the wrong question or, you know, whatever. Um, so part of it is just showing that, you know, lean is really, it's really common sense, right? You know, we're, we've got visual management. We usually have the prompts there to, uh, to see how things are going. And it doesn't take a lot to figure out if it's done right, how to figure out if something's operating correctly or not. Usually in a plant environment, you know, the role that that I end up playing is is understanding why something's been out of whack for longer than it should have been Um, and and trying to to help and provide um, resources when necessary to solve that problem. And sometimes it's just asking about it, right? Making sure people are aligned. So Really, it's bringing the people along and, and showing by example um, and asking, you know, certain types of questions. Um, after a few of them, they get the idea of what the questions are that you should ask, and they realize they're pretty practical questions. Yeah. And then, you know, you you've brought up
0: fear a couple of times and the need to help reduce or eliminate that fear um I think it's really interesting when you you know you have anybody who has decades of of habit leading the other way and they're trying to do something new that can be scary people will make mistakes when they're trying something new mm-hmm. like did you sort of try to give permission or at least set an expectation of look you okay if you're afraid of making mistakes you, you probably will and we'll learn from it and work through mm-hmm. it
1: well sure. I mean, I'm going to make a mistake too. I'm going to ask a question and somebody's going to, you know, give me an answer and I'm going to go, "Duh, right? And oh, it was right there." <laughs> or um, right. you know, or it was, you know, you know, hopefully not an inappropriate question, but it's something that, you know, maybe didn't make sense or, you know, somebody gives me the right answer. So, I try to be as vulnerable and as normal as possible. Um, and and we get it, right? The other thing is if I'm taking somebody on a gamble walk, or, you know, to a plant or to, to a function or wherever for their very first time, I try to be cognizant of that, right? I try to make sure that, you know, they, they have an opportunity to, to see, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is just a, we've got to make it normal, right? It's not something that we should be afraid of. Uh, we're trying to, we're all on the same team. We all have the same objective. We're all trying to do the same thing. This is not about playing gotcha. It's not about um, you know, making somebody look stupid. It's about how do we make it as easy as possible for the people doing the work to do the work. And, you know, as somebody coming from, you know, outside of the, the actual work environment, you know, I may have resources, tools, or seen solutions that they haven't seen. And we try to make that, um, and we try to make leaders understand that that's their role is to, uh, to, to really try to integrate, um, you know, the 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 more tools that they have to bring to the, to the problem, it's not their job to solve the problem. It's their job to help solve the problem and yeah. to make the resources available to do it. Yeah. So
0: back to the beginning of your talk, um, you, you caught my attention right away when your first slide was a picture of Max, a production specialist um, from right um, If you could. Tell us that story, and then maybe kind of weave in a little bit of why that was the way you started your talk there at AME because it really it, it stood out. That do, that doesn't always happen.
1: Yeah, well, I uh, I mean, I like to. You know, it's particularly when you're giving a talk at a at a lean conference, uh, you want to you want to talk about you know what works and what lean is really about. But I think the that particular Gemba walk and that particular story has always resonated with me it happened uh, at that time you know it was probably months before but uh, you know maybe a year ago I was on a gamble walk in, in a, a gelwind facility in um, Venice Florida It happened to be where we make uh, vinyl windows and patio doors and max is a glazier he works on the line there and uh, at the time was putting together vinyl windows so he's the guy that the Puts the glass in the windows and assembles them and a pretty important guy. And, you know, so we would start on the, the gimbal walk and we, we actually were doing uh, you know, stand in the circle exercise, right. You know, you sit, stand there, you observe the work being done and uh, you know, you do nothing else, right. Except for observe and then try to uh, to understand what's going on. And what we saw with Max is he's running around like crazy. You now he's waving at us and smiling. He's a really friendly guy. But he's working really really hard and he's running around trying to find glass to put in the windows that uh, that he was was building that day and so we we stopped we talked to max and max explained to me that uh, you know the the normally the carts the, the glass is on the carts in sequenced order and he just picks the glass and that tells him what to build and he builds the window and everything's great uh, unfortunately some of the glass was not uh, where it needed to be, there were empty slots in the carts. So what he was doing was he was finding complete sets that he could build and he was on the fly, you know, building windows that he could build, which is great, he was doing, he, he didn't want to miss miss tack, he didn't want to upset customers down the stream, but the reality was he was working extra hard and and it just wasn't right. So I asked Max, hey, what 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 would it take to to solve your problem? And, um, you know, let's first, let's take care of Max because we want Max to stay there and, and, and build windows. He said, listen, if I could have a spotter, somebody that could do this reordering of the, the glass and the carts for me, that would be really helpful. I could build more windows and be faster. So we did that right away. Um, but the reality of that whole story is, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't Max's problem, right? It was beyond Max's scope to fix the problem. So we tried to help him right away with that just by observing the work and talking to Max, he already had a pr- solution in mind. We just needed to make it happen. Um, but the real problem was we weren't getting glass, right? There was a glass shortage at the time and, you know, glass wasn't coming in and um, we needed to, to probably adjust our standard work uh, to make that, make that happen. Um, so a lot of things come out of that story, which is one, you know, let's help Max and make sure that we're we're, we're keeping him, you know, him happy so we can keep customers happy. Uh, but the second piece is making sure that we do ask enough questions to understand where the problem really is. You know, you can imagine if we'd never gone to Gemba, we'd be, you know, the customer service people are complaining that customers aren't getting their their, their, their windows on time or complete or whatever, we could sit in a conference room and solve that problem and say, you know what, we, we need to, you know, we, we need to push more windows out. We need to yell at somebody, do whatever, right? Um, or, you know, maybe we're, we're not getting the sales, we think, so we, we go out and we do a promotion or do something else. When we really need to sit down and, and solve that problem, which is find out that we have a supply issue at that particular time and we need to go solve the supply problem, which is causing this overall problem. Of, of getting enough windows out to customers at the right time. So the story to me just exemplifies by going and seeing you actually, you know, while you think you're solving one little problem in, in a line in a factory for one guy, what you're really doing is finding out, um, you know, where your, where your big problems are, where your constraints to grow the business, mm-hmm. to, to meet your commitments and, and keep your customers happy as well yeah
0: I mean, the story and the way you talk through it, I mean, it really does illustrate so many of the points that you've made of being inquisitive instead of making assumptions or making sure you understand is what we're observing here is that normal like is it a bad process, or is something gone wrong with the process and as as you described, there's so many ways that that could get off track or go off the rails if let's say the one new habit of going out into the factory Still brings with it the old habits of needing to have the answer, rushing into action, making assumptions instead of being inquisitive. That, 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 that could have gone differently with a different set of leaders.
1: Absolutely. And the great part of that is the really great part of that is that what that was not normal and they recognized it wasn't normal. Um, yeah, you're right. It could have gone a lot of different ways in, in, in different plants and different scenarios.
0: So let's talk um, about your book, Gary, um, decomplify a word that may or may not be in the dictionary. I didn't It's not. It's not. So tell tell us uh, the origin of creating that word decomplify and more importantly, what
1: it what it means to you. So the word, the the origin of the word is decades old. Um, Early in my, you know, er, in one of my early leadership roles, I guess I was lamenting with somebody with a colleague about how, how they always seem to complify or, or they always seem to make more complicated all of our, uh, our processes. You know, they don't, they don't leave things alone. They, you know, things could be so simple, but they probably corporate or whoever at the time, you know, just seem to always make things more complicated than they need to be. I think we've all had that, 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 that question or comment at some point. And a colleague, uh, shared that sentiment with me as well. And he actually talked about how they complify things. (laughs) So for whatever reason, I picked up that word and it became part of my, my lexicon for a lot, a lot of years. And, um, the, uh, the reality is when, uh, when, when I retired the first time, um, it was actually, uh, somebody made that comment that they kind of gave me that word as my word, uh, at my retirement uh, dinner and I, uh, uh, I thought about it and, you know, decomplifying things is something I'm always trying to do. And I thought that it just fit really well with the, the style of leadership and the, the style, you know, a lot of the things we talk about in Lean that, um, that, that, that I, profess, <laughs> I profess to use, I want our organizations to be. And uh, you know quite frankly the the simpler we make things, um, the easier it is, number one, to stabilize them, but mm-hmm. also to transform them and to 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 grow.
0: Yeah. So then, in that process of decomplifying, um, one other question that comes to mind is like and, and as a senior executive, you're thinking of all the things you could be focusing on and the the high level strategy deployment questions of what you should be doing. Trying to think through a situation where, you know, trying to, how do you diagnose or do we need to simplify and take waste out of what we're already doing versus a need to be innovative and to be doing new things in a different way, you know, or asked a different way, you know, improving the old process versus creating something new. Where do you find that balance?
1: So, I mean, it's almost the, you're almost asking the the old, the old paradoxical uh, you know, do we want productivity or do we want growth? You know, which do you want? And you know, I want both. Yeah. And uh, um, I think we've got to do it in the right balance. Um, you know, which kind of leads me to kind of the premise of, uh, of my whole belief uh, around, you know, decomplifying. Um, most companies have probably all share about the same strategy. They all want to outgrow their competition. Uh, on the top line they want to gain share in their product category they want to be leaders there and they want to continuously improve their margins and their returns for their their shareholders they all want to be great companies and and which has kind of led me to this definition of a great company so the great company in my mind is a company that people want to buy from people want to work for and people want to invest in People want to buy from a great company because they like the services and the products um, the, that the company offers. They uh, feel that the relationship is great, and it's easy to do business with a great company. People want to work for a great company because they're aligned with the the, the direction, the values, the aspirations of the company. They, they 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 feel that they can make a difference, and and, and They can make a contribution and it will be recognized, as well as they can realize their own personal and career aspirations. People want to invest in a great company because it delivers superior financial returns, um, you know, sustainably, consistently over a long period of time. And I'll add the caveat that great companies also always do the right thing. So if that is your premise for, for what you want to do. The, the importance of being able to do those things sustainably over time means a number of things. Lean gives us a continuous improvement um, kind of mantra and culture, the ability to continually look at what we're doing to continually improve and grow. Um, but part of that is the ability to innovate and change and redefine our future. Um, you know, If we always do what we're currently doing, we're probably going to fall behind. And it's probably not going to be what will sustain that same definition of a great company for our customers, for our people, or for our investors in the long term. So, while we're focused on doing what we do today better and better over time, and we can always do that, uh, we should also be expending energy to look at what we can do to continue to transform ourselves using. It could be new technology, new products, could be new business processes. It could be a whole new business model, or it could be um, associated with how we actually serve our customers as much as what we sell them. So there's a lot of different places we can look for innovation. Um, and they come out of understand, by the way, they come out of problem solving. They come out of being on at Gemba, you know, being out with our customers being out and, and and understanding how to solve their problems and even their customers' problems um, becomes part of, uh, of how we innovate going forward. So it's not an either or to me, sure. it, it's really an and.
0: Yeah. So you, you touched on, here's another and, you know, problem solving and communication.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: one, one thing I think was an interesting practice um, I was going to ask you about was um, I know what you've called the A3 open mic. If you want
1: to talk about what that yep. is and, and and why that was so helpful, so um, yeah, I'll give the credit where it's due to the team at Gelwin. Um, they uh, they implemented something, and I loved participating in it. But it was called Open Mic. It was A three Open Mic actually, and it was uh, once a month uh, was the cadence, and it was an open opportunity uh, for anybody that was working on an A three or had recently completed an A three. Um, to, um, to get on the call, and it was a nice mix of people that wanted to share a problem that they had solved uh, or were solving uh, for the benefit of, you know, number one, saying, hey, we did this, but also sharing across. Box 9, by the way, is on an A3 is always forgotten, right? <laughs> you know, what did we learn, right. um, and who can we share this with, right? Where else might we see this, this problem show up? Right. So this was part of box nine, really, of sharing um, sharing across the organization. But the other part of, of Open Mic was if you had an A3 that you wanted some coaching on or felt that you you were stuck or um, could use a little bit of help from across the organization, this was an opportunity that became a safe environment, believe it or not, mm-hmm. um, even though an Open Mic to To ask those kind of questions, to share your problem um, in an open environment, it really shows a culture, a, a trusting, mm. open problem solving culture that that can serve that 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 can thrive, and that people show up. No one's told to be well. I assume some people are probably told by their boss to be there, but <laughs> sure. my guess is uh, you know for the most part it's it's a volunteer you know it's a volunteer opportunity. So it is great. Um, it's, it's kind of a good balance of, you know, you get kudos for solving a good problem and sharing it across, but you also have an opportunity to get help from people that otherwise, you know, would not be, you know, kind of in your circle of helpers. Yeah. So when you talk about that
0: safe environment, it's not just safe to come and share successes, it's safe to share your
1: struggle. Absolutely. And I think that's what's important about a thriving culture to be that to be that great company culture that decomplified culture you've got to have a safe environment um, where it's okay to to bring up problems because if you don't bring up problems if you don't identify them you'll never solve them
0: So one other thing I want to ask for before we wrap up you know you, you, you talk about sharing you talk about that aspect of problem solving so I'm kind of picturing it may or may not exist Did Gary, Michelle, personal or corporate A three that talks about the problems you've solved, the current state, the, the countermeasures <laughs> that include lean, and you talk about the results. And now you want to share this with others. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And you know, there, there, there's always discussion around um, this question of, well, if lean is clearly a better way, not just to do manufacturing, but a better way of running an enterprise. And this has been known about for decades now. You know, why does it still seem like it's the exception more than the norm? Like what what are some opportunities? And and I'm sure the book Decomplify will be part of it, like to to share this in a way that that maybe influences other senior leaders to to maybe also try this this path.
1: Yeah, I don't know the answer to that because um, you know, I I to me now I can't imagine running a company any other way, but I know how hard it is to start a company on that path because I've had to do it a few times. Um, the, um, but it takes us, you know, it takes, it, it takes, um, you know, somebody an impetus, you know, um, almost a reason sometimes to, to get started. Right. It's, um, uh, I think it's, what is our definition of lean, right? It's, um, you know, what I talk about in my book is lean is part of it. It's a tool set that, that helps you. I mean, it's an important tool set, but it's a tool set that helps you. But my book is not in and of itself about lean. Um, the, um, the reality, it's about creating that culture where um, you, you focus on the things that are important and you strip away the things that are not. You focus on value. You spoke, you know, create value, create, I and mean, this is what Lean is about as well. F- focus on what creates value, what matters to your customers, um, how you engage and respect your employees, your, your associates, and how do you deliver consistently uh, the results that people look for um, to invest in. And to me, I've not found a better way to do it than to, to deploy, to use Lean tools, but they are tools, they are just mm-hmm. that. Mm -hmm. You still have to, you still need to have a direction, a strategy, um, a a way that you're planning to go. And, um, and and I think people kind of get confused, like it's one or the other, um, or that you see this massive number of tools and lean and you think you've got to know what every single one of them is. I, the big secret for me, uh, as a leader, is you don't really need to know what all those tools do. Um, if you really need a tool, you know, as a specific uh, a, a tool deployed, there are plenty of people who can help you teach people to use tools. That's not it. It's really about common sense and understanding. You know this this idea of having a problem solving culture and, and and focused on those few things. So for me, it's, it's, it's just the way I do it. Um, anybody I talk to, you know, we have these conversations. Um, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of understanding how to stay there. Now, the other side of that question that I get a lot is, uh, and I think I got at the conference we were at, um, is so what, what if, you know, the top leadership of my company doesn't, you know, support or hasn't, you know, isn't pushing lean? Or, or the CEO isn't, uh, you know, isn't driving this. You know, to me, that's the, the the best of all worlds is everybody from top to bottom is engaged and using the same tools and the and the same. But if you're running a function or you're running a factory or you're running a business, um, you can deploy Lean. You can use the tools, use the mentality, use the the the, the crux of it to uh, to to operate your business. Um, Everything can start there. And once you start performing as a business um, and outperforming everybody else, other people are going to ask, what's going on and how are you doing it? And I can assure you, you will become the new uh, the new lean zealot and, uh, and people will be copying.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you. I mean, it doesn't seem like you would want to send a CEO to a class to learn all the tools, but you're talking about lean tools plus mentalities culture um, management system like you know to me that can all be wrapped in in this label of lean or the toyota way or however you might label it like you're you're describing all of that working together and it seems like the ceo or senior leaders have more influence around
1: culture so maybe the way maybe the way to kind of put a a fine point on that is you know the, the the first chapter of my book is go see and it you know it You'll see Max again, and uh, you'll uh, you'll hear about you know really why that's important. But it ends with the concept of leader standard work. It really talks about leadership and leaders being important to creating this great company culture and becoming great companies. But it, it ends with talking about leader standard work and where leaders spend their time is indicative of, you know, being complicated or not. You know, to me, um, you know, the, the you know what I do every day, what I do every week, every month, every quarter, every year becomes important. And if you can decomplify that, uh, your work and, and lay it out where you're spending time, you are absolutely um, committed to spending time going to Gemba spending time on uh, developing your people, spending time with customers, investors in the right proportion, um, that becomes the mantra, that becomes the cadence for the rest of the company as well. And um, it's how you spend your time, how you set out to spend your time, and, and then live up to that. So leader standard work is actually one of the components that, uh, that I bring in very, very early um, and uh, in fact, in the first chapter uh, of the yeah. book, so it seems like it's a shift from somebody might say, "I'm
0: too important to have leader standard work," to realizing it's very important <laughs> that they do. I mean that that's that's getting that's moving past an old philosophy of right. Well, I'm just, I'm reacting to things. I can't plan out my time.
1: Well, I think if you're reacting, then you're you're not in a decomplified state, right? You're not in a lean state either. You you need as a leader to be able to look around corners. You need to to make sure that you're focusing on the right things, the things that add value, and um, so making that determination is really important. And the way that you cement that, the way that you you codify that, is in creating leader standard work. So, you know, is it a, is is every part of my leader standard work you know written down to step one, step two, step three? Sure. No. But is it laid out in a cadence of I do these things? The answer is yes. And you know, publish that, let people know what that is. And um, and, and to me, that's really important. That sets the tone for how you want to operate the, the organization.
0: So, Gary, maybe one final, final question. You you mentioned strategy deployment earlier. Can you can you talk about decomplifying some of those annual cycles of? Of planning and evaluating strategy and turning strategy into action. Can you give us kind of a before and after comparison of, you know, pre-strategy deployment and then what the benefits of strategy deployment were?
1: So I think, you know, we tend to focus on the things that we're doing now rather than on the things that maybe we should be doing. Seems to be kind of the way I sum up, you know, the, the, the difference. Um, you know the tradition of you know these massive strategic plans. You know that uh, that are you know put a lot of people put a lot of hard work into, a lot of data is collected, and you know just days and days of, of presentations. Um, I think those are um, they're beneficial, but they're 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 rare. The the problem with those is they rarely get executed. Um, in in a way that's sufficient. They're not tied to the reality of the organization. Um, I'm not discounting the work. The work needs to be done. We need to understand uh, what's going on in our markets. What what technology capabilities are there? Are there better operational solutions to things? What problems could we solve for our customers that would help us to reinvent ourselves over time? We need to do that. Um, But I like to do it in in, in a process I call critical strategic decisions, similar type work, but really defining, you know, in the old traditional way, you know, where are we going to play? You know, what game are we playing? How do we win? What do we need to win? Um, And then how do we, you know, what are the resources, tools, and, and systems that need to go there? But we really start to focus on just a couple of these. Some people call them breakthrough uh, initiatives, I'll start with critical strategic decisions. What are those three to five-year, um, you know, really two to three things, right, uh, that we're really going to focus on, we really believe, and we're all going to get behind, um, you know, bar anything else in order to do. And then once we've done that, um, then we go into, you know, the, the the deployment part, the execution part, which is the hard part. Um, and. Um, That's where, you know, strategy deployment, Hoshin comes in. You kind of enter that process with uh, these critical strategic decisions, and then you start to break them into manageable chunks that you can can define, that people can understand what do we need to do in year one, and and then go after it, And, and then start to cascade those goals so that you're tied from your critical strategic decisions through your annual objectives, all the way through the initiatives and what people need to drive. And then that's what you review every month, right? Um, You review, obviously, your financials. I make my financials a part of of the tracker for for every business or function. You review those. You see if you're on track or not on track and what you need to do there. But you're also reviewing the status of where you are on those critical strategic decisions Mm -hmm. every single month and looking at the, the process as much as as the output. And if you can make that part of your normal tactic, it becomes this virtuous cycle that just starts feeding itself. So your strategy discussions, while, yeah, they tend to sort of be focused on you know, the summer months and getting ready for an annual operating plan. The reality is we're really we're really always thinking about it and we're always modifying what we learn month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year. Um, I, I will point out that I try to also make it very easy on the annual operating side. You know, I kind of have an algorithm on the financials of you know if, if our goal is always to, to to grow the top line better than our competitors and, and continuously improve our margins. There's a few things that you know we we need to start out on the financials with to allow mm-hmm. ourselves to make sure that happens, right? And then also to give ourselves money to 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 invest in the rest of the business and the CSDs. Mm -hmm. So I do have an algorithm for that, but the point is make it very, very simple, make it easy to understand and get it to the point where after a couple of cycles, it's just part of your, your cadence. And again, part of your your leader standard work, um, the idea of creating that big book and putting it on the shelf, um, just, just doesn't never, never appealed to me. And um, by the way, I never saw, you know, most of it never gets, <laughs> gets executed. Well, Gary, thank you first off again for speaking at the AME
0: conference. Thank you for being here with us today. So we've been joined again by Gary Michelle. Upcoming book, I'm really excited about it, uh, Decomplify, How Simplicity Drives Stability, Innovation, and Transformation. So hopefully I've made good use of your time. we can going think about the questions I asked versus the questions I should have asked think of that as my own strategy deployment cycle
1: here. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. It's always a lot of fun to share uh, share some of this story. Yeah. Well, thanks again.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email
1: mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.